But if I had the opportunity, I would change all of my films in one way or another. If I could recut them, uh, sometimes uh, change my selection of shots, sometimes even make changes in the story, but not this film, not Sorcerer. This is the one film that I've made that I would not change a frame of. Welcome back to a brand new episode of Not A Bomb Podcast. This is the podcast where we go back and talk about movies that bomb theatrically, or maybe the critics didn't like. Brad, uh, we had something scheduled, but we decided to just throw that out the, the door and do something completely different because we got some bad news here recently, right? We did. We usually don't sort of, I don't want to say celebrate because that's a bad a bad uh, word, uh, memorialize people on this show very often because we have stuff planned out for like six months. But when William Friedkin passed away, we'd been talking about doing Sorcerer for the longest time. And this was kind of the bump we needed to finally go ahead and do it. So we bumped a film and did decided to do Sorcerer from 1977. Yes. And it's, it's not the first time we've talked about something from this director way, way back, way back in the beginning, like in the first 10 episodes. Yeah. The uh, episodes like you d- don't go back and listen to those first 10. Don't, yeah. just don't. Well, no, that, oh, so this one was, on. this was episode seven. I think we did the hunted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and it was a fun discussion, but, um, yeah, he's, he's a director that we talked about before. We're going to spend probably a little bit more time with him because we have a special guest this time back in episode seven. I think it was just still you and me. But uh, we we are super lucky to have one of the hosts from one of the best podcasts out there talking about current films, Watch Skip Plus. We we have a good friend Jose joining. How are you this evening? I'm good. Thanks for having me back. And and lucky, I I don't know. You have to you have to wait until afterwards. Okay. <laughs> I I do have a quick question. I was I was mulling this around a little bit because we talk about William Friedkin. He's he's such an interesting director. He is a powerhouse uh, director that really set the tone um, for cinema in the 70s. But he's also a director that I really didn't understand how big of an impact he had on my life until later in, in my film watching career. But it, it made me mull around a question. Um, Brad and I have talked about this on, on several occasions, like, like growing up and especially mean in the seventies and eighties, like my movie going experience, I was so excited about seeing ninja films and, uh, you know, people getting kicked in the face, but there was a time when movies moved from entertainment, stuff like star Wars and cloak and dagger, et cetera, into, Oh my gosh, this is an art form. And, uh, there's a point in time where all of a sudden your, your taste in cinema change and you go, why I I really want to go and try and find some of these films that are considered classics or art. And they're doing more than just the entertainment stuff. Right? So my, my question for both of you is, do you remember that film that kind of gave you that aha moment that movies could be more than just the entertainment factor? 
and that they could speak to you or speak to like the human condition, be a little bit more pretentious. I'll, I'll go first. I, I remember specifically my father talking about, you know, all these different films. And one of the things I always loved is we would go um, and, and check out classic theaters. So I got to go to the Continental in uh, Denver, which is like one of the seven or eight largest theaters uh, in the world. Saw Spartacus there, full intermission, stuff like that, 70 millimeter. But before that, the movie that I stumbled across that all of a sudden I was like, wow, I really need to start taking movies a little bit more seriously. And I discovered it in high school was 2001 a space odyssey Mm -hmm. so as soon as i saw that on the big screen in a 70 millimeter print all of a sudden it was hey i i think i'm interested in more than just martial arts ninja samurai films um you know the fun stuff the 80s arnold schwarzenegger uh bruce will stuff like all, all of a sudden it was like wow movies can be really important And I remember seeing that film and then all of a sudden talking about it with like-minded people. But that was the one that was like, oh, well, let let me, all of a sudden, maybe I'll give Westerns a chance. And um, then I, you know, hey, what, what is the Wild Bunch? What, what is Spartacus? Um, So I I didn't know if you guys had that film that was an aha moment. And it, it made me realize, you know, The Exorcist, which I'm sure we'll talk about today because we'll talk about Billy Freakin, that just totally scared the bejesus out of me for, for well, most of my life. Cause even today I've never watched it by myself, but going back and then understanding who that director was and then watching his other films, like the French connection, et cetera. I, I, I didn't know if you guys remember that moment or age or even that film that triggered it for you when you started looking at movies more than entertainment. It's funny you brought up Stanley Kubrick. Cause mine would be 1956, the killing from Stanley Kubrick. Oh, really? When, yeah, when, did because, you, when did you see that? Like what age? Um, my dad showed it to me because I grew up in Lexington, which is, you know, heart of horse country. Mm-hmm. And the whole premise of that is they're robbing a horse track. Um, and he was a big Sterling, Hay- Sterling Hayden fan. And I don't really know if it was the Kubrick of it all. I think it was more of the Sterling Hayden and the fact that it was a horse race. Um, and But that was the moment to me where I was like, oh, like films could be this noir. They could be a little bit more. I would say the killing is violent, but the guys that you're, you're with aren't necessarily good guys. Um, and so you're kind of on the looking at film that way, like, Oh, I don't always have to be with the good guys. The bad guys can, can be the, the people that we're following. So that was my first experience to, to stuff like that. And that really made me go down a rabbit hole. And then I was like, Oh, I'm watching, all these noir films. I'm watching the Maltese Falcon, you know, all this stuff. And, yeah. and that, that was kind of my starting point there for sure. Okay. What, what about you, Jose? Do you have sort of that iconic film or moment when it you're like, all right, I like pretentious stuff. Like, let me, <laughs> let me just, let me just go. So I think, I think my realization that movies could be more is probably steeped in two kind of odd moments one one pop culture based another was more family based but i remember you know seeing things like star wars and uh my earliest memory uh, as a child is actually seeing jaws which is weird because i was born in 74 but i distinctly remember like you know the the shark and people being scared i, I actually weirdly remember that but 
I would go to the movies with my parents a lot. And I remember in 1983, I saw Terms of Endearment in the theaters with my mom. And of course, nothing's blowing up. There's no sharks. There's no aliens or lightsabers. And yet, as a kid, I actually got into the story and uh, and just seeing people cry and seeing my mom cry and then seeing the emotions of that and, you know, Deborah Winger and, and Shirley MacLaine, like, I think that was the moment that I realized movies could be more than just a fun time and seeing weird, you know, space things on the screen. And the second moment would be pop culture based. I saw Dirty Dancing in the theaters. And, and again, same thing. It was like community, like we were, Almost like the audience and me were all on the same page. We're crying, we're laughing, we're swooning all at the same time. And then at the end of the movie, everybody stood up and clapped like it was live theater or something. <laughs> um, wow. So, yeah, okay. I, I I wish it was something like, oh, I saw Citizen Kane or, or a Kurosawa film and was bowled over by the images. But it's really those two that showed me the, the power of cinema. No, and it, then it was just a matter of finding a movie that I liked and then just dipping through that director's, um, you know, resume and watching his other films. Yeah. I will be honest. I didn't really pay attention to directors and maybe people behind the camera as much as like, Oh, it's, it's an Arnold Schwarzenegger film. Oh, it's, it's Chuck Norris, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, star Wars or flash Gordon or some of the science fiction ones, uh, even the horror films that I really liked, I was always fascinated with the, the mechanics of what it took for the special effects so, and I, I don't, I don't think it's in circulation anymore. Well, I know it isn't magazines like Starlog, which was sort of the science fiction equivalent of Fangoria. So you would get those two magazines just to learn like, well, how did they do those special effects? So special effects had always interested me, but I don't think it was till 2001 where it was like, Hey, I don't understand that film. I'm maybe go read the book to see if I get more of it. Then I'm like, who's this Kubrick guy? What else did he do? Which led me to like clockwork orange um, and, and again, it just opened up this door of my dad was always trying to show me Westerns and I'm like, I, I just don't like Westerns. But then it was like, well, maybe go give another one a chance. And then you stumble across stuff like the good, the bad, and the ugly, the searchers, the cowboys. I mean, all of a sudden it's like, wow, Westerns are more than, than just guys riding around on horses. Shoot. There, there's like meaning in them, but it doesn't surprise me that, you know, somebody would come across and go, well, dirty dancing had this effect. I mean, to me, Dirty Dancing is probably a good gateway drug to to musicals. I mean, it it'll take you down that pathway, and then you'll you'll end up discovering Gene Kelly, um, Fred Astaire, stuff like that. So it uh, doesn't surprise me at all. But I, di I didn't know. Like I said, th those are great answers. I I love hearing sort of that personalization of movies, where it was yeah, it was this film, and all of a sudden it's like man, I'm I'm going down this rabbit hole, and you understand movies a little bit more. I got, I got to ask I, uh, my kid that I, question. Cause I don't know what their answer is. We had, we had a blockbuster that was really, really close, but every once in a while we would drive over to the other uh, movie rental place, which was like a mom and pop place. And it had, they had a much more uh, diverse collection of films. Mm -hmm. And I remember specifically they would have, if you like this film, here's others by that director. And that, was like the first moment in my life where I was like, Oh, wait a minute. Like directors usually maybe sort of have their own sort of style. And you can tell like a director has made this, this, and this film because of just the way they make films and they have a signature. 
And that was like the first moment where I was like, wait a minute, like these guys carry themes throughout their films. They talk about certain things. And I, I remember because we would go to that other movie rental place, having that epiphany of, oh, wait, like the guy who makes this, like this could be like, you know, this is the, his thing. This is his project. Um, of course, m- hundreds of thousands of people work on films, but you know, the director is the guy that you say he made this film. Yeah. And that was kind of my first moment of, of that realization. That's cool. Yeah. Hey, the first two movies I remember are um, Herbie or the love bug <laughs> and uh, a movie that I did not know the title of until probably college because I only remember this scene we, we had gone. It was black and white. It was called Solar Babies? No, it was not Solar Babies. <laughs> but I just remember this image of this guy coming off the beach or something trying to dry himself, but he's standing next to a pole, and he's, you know, he's got the towel, and he's trying to do his back, but it's around the pole. And, he, and I'm like, where's that scene from? And then years later, it was, oh, that's Monsieur Hulot's Holiday, Jacques Tati, which made me go down that whole rabbit hole. Um, so I was really grateful for my parents, like exposing me to that stuff at, at a really early age, but it, I mean, didn't understand it. Um, th- I, I think this is a great question for listeners too. look, if, if you're listening to the podcast and you have that aha moment, which kind of took you down, um, this path of, Hey, film can be more than entertainment. And you found that director, you found that film that sort of opened your eyes to an entire genre or, or just those prestigious films, share it with us. I, I love these kind of stories. Um, I think with film, though, you have like five or six or may, uh, maybe an infinite number of aha moments. Because I remember the first time I saw a Kurosawa film. Obviously, the first time I saw a Tarantino film. There's just these moments where you see things and all of a sudden your life changes with when it comes to the aspect of film. Oh, absolutely. And and for me, I, I just I remember 2001 being that moment of mm-hmm. I like things more than stuff blowing up. Or, or people getting like, yeah. uh, because all of a sudden it was like, I have no idea what that baby floating in space actually means or what happened in the last 30 minutes. <laughs> but it was cool shit. It was. And, yeah. and that's a film that anytime the AFI plays it uh, on the big screen. It, it also made me realize that, you know, um, growing up in the age of, of video cassettes and having entertainment on your small screen, they made movies where you really couldn't appreciate it unless you went to the movie theaters. And, and to me, no matter how big your TV is or your setup, et cetera, and, and the 4K for 2001 is, is beautiful, it does not speak to you unless you see it on the big screen, in my opinion. Um, but tonight, we're going to talk about another one of those films, in my opinion, that, uh, my goodness, if, if it were showing on the big screen, I would definitely go see it uh, because of some sequences in here, but we are going to talk about William Friedkin's Sorcerer from 1977. Brad, take yes, us sir. back when this was released, because I believe it had uh, run into some trouble when it hit the theaters. It did. It, did. It, it, it it felt the force, if you will. Oh, hey, there you go. <laughs> uh, so released June 24th, 1977. Let's just get this out of the way. Star Wars A New Hope. Released May 25th of 1977. So this thing was dead <laughs> in the water before even released. Um, initial budget was $17 million. The final budget comes in at $22 million. Uh, that is because Freakin wanted to shoot on location. So they were constantly like building roads and all this stuff. The Everyone in the crew got malaria at some point in time. Um, it was it was pretty bad. Uh 
So yeah, an extra five million dollars onto seventeen, so brings it to twenty-two. If you look up the phrase "blank check film" in the dictionary, "Sorcerer" will be numero uno on the blank check example because this comes after The Exorcist. The Exorcist had a twelve million dollar budget. The Exorcist theatrical run made four hundred and forty-one point three million well, dollars hold on wow no, not not on its initial release not on this initial yeah. run so yes. can we go back just a little bit when you talk about blank check there's a reason for that so you actually have to go back to 1971 for the well, french yeah. connection the french connection yeah okay it yeah. had a budget of 2.2 million so in 2023 dollars that's about 15 million it makes 75 million dollars in 1971 dollars which today that'd be about 566 million now that that's the financial numbers it turns around and gets eight oscar nominations has five oscar wins including best picture and best director it is mm-hmm. arguably considered one of the best movies of all time yeah then yes. he follows that up with the cultural phenomenon of the exorcist now you kind of mentioned this already the budget is 12 million. So he went from two to 12. So that equates to about 82 million in, in today's money. Its initial release is $112 million. Mm-hmm. So the, yep. the first year that it played. So that's about $771 million in, in today. And then he does it again. He gets 10 Oscar nominations for that film. He was nominated um, for Best Director. The movie was nominated for Best Picture. It lost. The only two Oscars it ended up getting was Screenplay and Sound. So at this point, and and there is a great, uh, great. <laughs> there's a great, <laughs> there's a great quote. Knowledge. Yeah, from uh, Friedkin, because as a result of those, he got a multi-picture deal with Universal. And um, basically, per Billy Friedkin's comments, quote, the studios would have financed my nephew's bar mitzvah if I wanted them to do that because of those two films. Yeah. I'd, arguably, there's probably not a hotter director after two films than William Freakin. Exactly. Yeah. And both of those films, by the way, are in the National Film Registry for culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant or aesthetic significance uh, in the Library of Congress. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I as mean, they should be. Two Oscar nominated films with great performances. Yeah, he he could have done from Justin to Kelly and they would have piped in 120 million. Yeah. So (laughs) all of a sudden I want a William Friedkin from Justin to Kelly. Oh, yes. (laughs) In some other universe. So much better. Yeah. 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 Be so sad. Um, the box (laughs) office run is somewhere between nine and twelve. I found it said nine million, but I also found another where it said it made twelve. But either or it's a bomb. Um, financially doesn't make back its production budgets. Um, but critically, critically sorcerer sits at a 81% on rotten tomatoes, but in an eight now, now, not now. then. Yes. Again, we're looking at some revisionist revisionist history on this one. Um, critics hated it when it first came out. Hated. They it. did. Yes. They did. Um, people go back and like, change things he's like oh wait a minute William freaking no, we won't go down that path but anyway right now it's at an 81 percent um audience at an 84 percent so audience likes it more than the critics 
Um, now that they you know, I think even it. some, <laughs> I think even some Friedkin fans are like eh, sorcerer well, because I mean, they gravitate to a lot of French Connection, some of his other uh, his other crime film, which we'll mention eventually. I guess. Well, I mean, if you think <laughs> about it, though, you're 1977. You've seen the French Connection from a guy, and you've seen The Exorcist from the same guy. And you're like, oh, sorcerer, here we go, and you see it, and it's much different. So I'm assuming. It's just a, uh, a thing of your expectations being way off from what he delivered. And we all know that that can really sour you on oh, man. the way I, you I, feel about a film. I want to pipe in on that right now because I, I don't think that's the case at all. You don't? I, Were you I, not soured? No. Well, <laughs> you weren't, weren't choice soured? <laughs> I was not choice soured. I don't know. I, I mean, we'll, we'll get into this. Okay, I think when we talk you, about bro? when it failed. I'm not gonna, I, I, all I'm saying is Sorcerer, to me really is no different than his movies leading up to that structurally. I, I, if you're, I think something happened in the cultural zeitgeist that just, we, it, it's almost like a superhero. There's not fatigue. a chick with her head turning around. You know, like there's not this, these elements. I don't, I don't think that had anything to do with it. I you don't, I, you don't think that had anything to do with, I, I, if, if we're going to debate it now, I, I would look at it, this perspective that, the Exorcist was a huge hit. Sorcerer had problems on its release. Um, if you think about from a marketing perspective, I think the title, nobody knew what to work for. Were there people that were confused? Like, is this the sequel to The Exorcist? It's called Sorcerer. And if they're going in looking for the head spinning, sure, right? But I think what's interesting here is the critics turned on Freakin. Up to that point, he was a critical darling. And if you hear him talking about it, when this thing was being released, he just thought, oh, it's going to be another hit. He thought he made his his best film. And even the critics turned on him. And I think that was a cultural turn, very much like what we're seeing with like superhero fatigue. I think there's something that goes with the movie going audience. And as a, as a film landscape, it was like, well, we're done with the new Hollywood. Like to me, Sorcerer is the beginning of the decline of the new Hollywood that started with Bonnie and Clyde, where people were just like, we don't want this anymore. And what's interesting is I found this quote um, from reviewer Pauline Kale. So she's, mm. she's the big critic, right? So she says, Star Wars contributed to the infantizing the audience, as well as obliterating irony, self-consciousness, and critical reflection. And a lot of critics at that time argued that Star Wars was pure escapism and made intellectually demanding films like Sorcerer obsolete. So well, oh, I, well. I think, <laughs> and, and what's weird is I would have expected that critics would have looked at this and said, oh, this is a masterpiece. It's pure 70 cinema. It is part of that new Hollywood but I think everybody had gotten to a point as soon as Star Wars hit the scene. And you got to remember, the other second highest grossing film of that of that year was Smokey and the Bandit. Mm-hmm. It was actually number one until Star Wars came along, I think. Um, if you look at the top grossing films and what was going on with you know, American film at that time period, I, I think everybody turned on freaking because they're like, this is not what we want right now. We want escapism. I think Pauline Kale's right. It's like, there's something that happened that all of a sudden we, we infantilizing, I think is what she infantilizing, infantilizing. Okay. Yeah. She's saying that we got dumb. 
we got real dumb about that time period and we just wanted escapism cinema. So I don't think it's that they were expecting another exorcist or something of that nature. I think all of a sudden they wanted spectacle and escapism. And even the critics were going down that path and saying, okay, we're, we're kind of done with the nihilism now. I think this is very, this is very, um, I think the film is very highbrow in some ways. Right. Uh, and so I think that maybe it was, it was, like the ninth configuration to many when they were expecting something a little bit more conventional. Possibly. Is, and, and I might also add that the film is about anti-heroes basically. And I think even at that time in the seventies, you did have some anti-hero films, but they weren't popular. They weren't the norm. Um, oh, and mm, I think some people, the French connections all, I mean, it, folk, it won an Academy award and, Popeye Doyle is probably one of the biggest anti-heroes you could ever. Yeah. Yeah. I, I it's think tr- you, it's true, but maybe, maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe people were just like, we've had it with this. <laughs> I, I do. I, I think, I think it's that cyclical effect. I mean, we see it all the time in cinema, right? All of a sudden the, the tides change. Um, and I, I think what started in the mid sixties or with movies like Bonnie and Clyde going up to the, the jaw, cause jaws again, Jaws is the creation of the blockbuster, right? And that was a couple of years before Star Wars. Star Wars yeah. solidifies that business model. So you had two years where the, the audience was going, well, we really like this shark movie. It's thrilling. It's exciting. Um, then comes Star Wars, and it's a visual feast, right? And now you're not really trying to talk about the human condition anymore. You're you're really trying to escape what's going on in the 70s. And uh, I, I think that's where everybody headed. Can I, can I finish my part, Troy? Can oh, I finish? I'm sorry, go ahead. Okay. <laughs> films, Whoa. Films you, films you could have seen June of 1977. We have For the Love of Benji, The Other what? Side of Midnight. That was a good movie. That Benji film. All those Benji films are great. <laughs> a Bridge oh, Too Far, The Deep. Here's something ironic. Exorcist Two: The Heretic came Ooh. out two weeks before uh, Sorcerer. Uh New York, New York, the rescuers. Herbie goes to Monte Carlo. <laughs> Love that one. And uh, MacArthur are the films you could have seen June of 1977. But remember, uh, everybody's still Star, Star Wars, Wars. A New Hope comes out May 25th. Yeah. I don't want to see this other side of midnight now. It looks kind of good. <laughs> <laughs> Crazy eclectic uh, taste, man. Well, hey. I- <laughs> let's talk about the people I guess behind the camera Jose you're you're the expert at this so give us a little bit of the history of the people who brought this thing to life let's talk about Billy I think we could have have a full episode on Billy actually Um, William Friedkin is the director of Sorcerer he's also the producer he is noted classic legendary filmmaker not afraid of his opinions infamous for his volatile and provocative behavior on film sets. Uh, Born in Chicago to Ukrainian Jewish parents, he became a fan of the movies Like Us as a teenager, um, citing as major reasons why he became a cinephile. The films Citizen Kane, Psycho, and two by Henri-Georges Clouzet, Les Diaboliques, and The Wages of Fear, which will become a little bit more relevant later in this discussion. He lists... Godard, Fellini, Truffaut, and uh, Kurosawa as his influences. 
From his humble beginnings working in a mailroom at a local network, he started directing live television shows and even documentaries. Um, one of his documentaries, The People vs. Paul Crump, actually won an award at San Francisco International Film Festival, and the man's death sentence actually got commuted in part to the response to this documentary. He also would I think even... Sorry, I think it's important yeah. to to kind of harp on the fact that he worked on documentaries because a lot of his films have a documentary type feel to them. So he's laying that groundwork very early in his career. That's a good point. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, he even directed one of the last episodes of the Alfred Hitchcock Hour in 1965. Um, and famously, Alfred Hitchcock rode him for not wearing a tie or dressing formally while directing, which is interesting. Um, now, Brad did mention the fact that he uh, has done documentaries and he, uh, freaking credits Costa Gavras's film Z with inspiring him to mix documentary style photography, both handheld and then your normal documentary style with filmmaking. Um, and that would essentially become a signature hallmark of a lot of his films, mo most notably his earlier films. We talked about the fact that he shot to fame in 71 with The French Connection and then 73's The Exorcist. I would note that his first film was 1965's Good Times, starring Sonny and Cher, and that's also likely a nod to a lot of his live television days. Um, he did do he did direct two films after those, and then obviously 71 and 73. At that point, after after that, and after this film, Sorcerer, his films would really never reach the same critical or box office heights of those films. After Sorcerer, he dipped into the crime comedy genre with a film called The Brinks Job in 78 about the great Brinks robbery in Boston. 1980 brought the controversial and still talked about film cruising, um, yet another uh, high point, I think, on his resume. Um, that film uh, starring Al Pacino was protested during production by the LGBTQ community, and the film was a critical and financial bomb. Arguably, Verhoeven's Basic Instinct would later find similar protests and vociferous criticism, um, the difference being that Instinct was a hit. <laughs> in 81, Friedkin unfortunately suffered a heart attack, and he spent months and months in rehabilitation. He would follow that stint with directing sat a satire film, Deal of the Century, with Chevy Chase and Sigourney Weaver. He even directed a music video for Barbara Streisand for her rendition of Somewhere from West Side Story. He would revisit the crime genre with 1985's stellar To Live and Die in L.A., yet say it, another say it. high point. Say it, Jose. What's that? Say it. Say it. Uh, to Live and Die in L.A. is William Freakin's best film? Yes, it okay. is, in fact, William Friedkin's, I think, William Friedkin's best film. Um, it's another high point on his resume. I think he out-Michael Manned Michael Mann mm -hmm. and even oh, drew oh. comparisons to himself. <laughs> wow. Okay. I, I was connection. with you with it being, it's, it's his best film, but then you had to say that. I am pumping the brakes, my friend. Well, interestingly enough... Mann actually sued him for plagiarism in 85, saying that claiming that he stole To Live and Die in L.A. from the concept of Miami Vice. Mann actually lost the lawsuit. As um, he should. Yeah. He also OJ Simpson was found not guilty, too. So do we need to go down this road? <laughs> oh, my God. The legal system is broken, Jose. If the celluloid fits, you must... Uh, <laughs> 
He revisited horror with the nature Wicca themed family unit terror film, The Guardian, which I think it's out of print now, but it's that bonkers. movie was bonkers. It's, yeah, it's super, super bonkers. Friedkin even dabbled in erotic thriller with 1995's Jade, written by Joe Esterhaus of Basic Instinct fame Mm-mm. and produced by Robert Evans. Go back one more. What's Go that? Back one more. Blue Chips is one of the best sports movies ever. Oh, made. that's right. He did do Blue. Or well, I thought Blue Chip. Did he do Blue Chips? Yeah, he did. He did Blue Chips. That's right. <laughs> oh, okay. I guess I yeah. missed that. that wow. Was that Nick Nolte? Yes, yes. Nick Nolte played the coach. Yeah. Shaquille O'Neal, Anthony Hardaway, Bob Knight was in it. Rick Pitino. Boy, he really. He really has dipped in practically every single genre. Yeah. Um, he did a sports film, also written by Ron Shelton. Who Ron Shelton, yeah. Go on to do, uh, uh, write Bull Durham and direct Bull, Bull Durham. Yeah. Um, 1995's Jade, we've talked about that. It's also one of his favorite films he's ever directed. I would point everybody to iTunes, which has the director's cut of Jade. It is much better than theatrical. Stay tuned um, to this podcast in about mm, about a year or so. We'll do we'll do it. Yeah, we're we're gonna be. I got a feeling we'll probably do all of his. Uh, I guess box office flops at some point. I I'm still waiting for the erotic thriller month with you guys. Oh wow! Uh, <laughs> I'm sure you can get a lot get of bombs out, out of that. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's not called that. Oh, sorry. <laughs> That's what I'll be doing. Okay. Uh, her. Her, Sammy from GGTMC, Friedkin would then dip into transgressivism with his adaptations of two plays written by noted playwright and actor Tracy Letts. And those are 2007's Bug and then followed up by Killer Joe, which earned an NC-17 rating and all but ensured it's sort of bombing. That stars Matthew McConaughey. He also published a memoir in 2013 called The Friedkin Connection, has taken sojourns into television directing, having directed two cat squad tv movies i've not seen these apparently they're actually not bad and even some episodes of csi he would return to his home filming base of documentaries with 2017's the devil and father amorth uh and this follows famed vatican exorcist father gabriel amorth and even films a real life exorcism in an italian village if you haven't seen it it's super creepy and terrifying troy i know if you didn't like the exorcist i would say don't watch this because oh, i saw it. it yeah it's very uneasy it kept me <laughs> yeah. up yeah yeah and then it's, prior oh. unfortunately prior to his untimely passing uh, he did complete a film adaptation of the two-act play, The Cane Mutiny Court Martial, and that stars Kiefer Sutherland is due to screen out of competition at the Venice Film Festival in September this year. I'm sorry, I, Brad, go ahead. No, I was going to ask, is, is Freakin' a director that we've seen all of his films? Is there a film of Freakin' you haven't seen? Well, you, you didn't mention Rampage. I know that's out of print. Yeah. Have, have you guys seen that yeah. one? I, had not I did seen, catch Rampage it. is the only I did one catch that it I on not Tubi. seen. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's, on it's, Mike, it's Michael awesome. Bean is in that, I think. Mm-hmm. Michael Bean. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And um, I forget the gentleman's name who plays the serial killer. He's very good looking. Alex something or other. Alex MacArthur? Yeah, I think so. I think the Brinks uh, um, job is the only one I haven't seen. And uh, I looked it up. Kino Lorber has like a special edition Blu-ray that I'll, I'll be picking up when they have another cool. sale. So, yeah. Yeah, that's weird. I feel like I've practically seen all of, of Freakin's films. Wow. That's yeah. crazy. Um, 
Our writer is Wallen Green. He's born in Baltimore. Obviously, this film is actually based on the novel The Wages of Fear by Georges Anneau, which was adapted into The Wages of Fear by one of Friedkin's favorite directors. And in fact, this film is dedicated to Henri-Georges um, Closet. Uh, he Wallen Green is best known for writing the screenplay for Sam Peckinpah's The Wild Bunch, and he would go on to write Friedkin, Friedkin's The Brinks Job, as well as the film's War Games. Brad's favorite film, Solar Babies, the Hell high yeah. low, the high low country, and RoboCop Two. How do you go from later- the Wild Bunch to Solar Babies? That both classics in their own right, Troy. <laughs> alcohol isn't lo- as bad. Maybe folks. a lot of drugs and no, yeah. I'm just kidding. I'm joking. <laughs> That's what alcohol can do to your life. It can just ruin it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Eventually, Green would find himself in television producing and writing for shows like ER, the Law & Order franchise shows, Conviction, Mercy Street. And he is a producer on classic television shows like Hill Street Blues, NYPD Blue, Dragnet, the one with um, Al Bundy and Ethan Embry. Um, I'm sorry, Ed O'Neill. I say um, (laughs) Al Bundy. Um, And then the show's Law & Order uh, and then the spinoffs, Trial by Jury and Criminal Intent. We have two DPs, believe it or not, the stunningly named Dick Bush. Uh, his real name is actually Richard Henry Bush. He is a British cinematographer who started in the 60s doing television shows and live events. He is known most for British horror films like 71's The Blood on Satan's Claw and Hammer films like Twins of Evil and one of my favorites, Dracula AD 1972, which is bonkers. Um, and the Fred Savage film, Little Monsters. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> he is also Ken Russell's preferred DP weapon of choice, having lensed Savage Messiah, Mahler, Tommy, Crimes of Passion, and Lair of the White Worm. And he struck a very cordial, obviously, DP relationship with Blake Edwards and shot Victor Victoria, Trail of the Pink Panther, Curse of the Pink Panther, Switch, another favorite of mine, and Son of the Pink Panther, Our second DP is John M. Stevens, and he's known for um, older television shows in the 60s like Danger Island and Alias Smith & Jones, but he was the DP for films like Billy Jack, Boxcar Bertha, Blackula, Steel Justice, which I just saw, which is also bonkers, and Ski Patrol. Gotta love that resume. (laughs) Ski Patrol's on there. He was also the second unit director on Three Amigos and the Tremors television series. I actually appreciate this man's resume. (laughs) Our music is by Tangerine Dream, a German music collective with a bit of a rotating roster. Founded in 1967, they are one of the first groups to provide what are called ambient soundtracks. So these are soundtracks that aren't like your traditional scores, but they use sound textures, sonic imagery, and they are pioneers of what would eventually become the genre electronica due to their use of synthesizers and sequencers, and they would go on to inspire and influence composers and electronic artists for decades. First album was Electronic Meditation in 1970s, uh, 1970. They are de- their albums are often described as space rock, using synth and guitars amongst other instruments. Other sounds, would it, soundtracks- Would it be more a- space yacht rock? Maybe. Yeah. Yacht rock. I think it's space yacht rock is more- <laughs> Other soundtracks after this film include Inter- Enterprise Michael Rock. Enterprise Rock, yes. Maybe include Michael rock. Mann's Space Thief. Pontoon Rock. Yeah, I like that one better. And the Keep. <laughs> Space Star Destroyer Rock. Um, Michael Mann's Thief, The Keep, 
Ridley Scott's Legend, Catherine Bigelow's Near Dark, Tom Cruise's Risky Business, Firestarter, Red Heat, and they've even composed music for two Grand Theft Auto video games, which I found very, very surprising. And they also recently released an album in 2022 entitled ROM. Uh, two last shout outs, and I promise I'll shut up. Um, our production designer is the legendary production designer, John Box. So not only did we get a Bush, guys, we got a box. <laughs> and so uh, he designed three Academy Award Best Picture winners. Those are Lawrence of Arabia, a man for all seasons and Oliver and three Academy award best picture nominees having done production design for Dr. Zhivago, Nicholas and Alexandra and a passage to India. He's been nominated six times for an Academy award. He's won four times, six times for a BAFTA won three times. He's also done the production design for 74's the great Gatsby Rollerball, Michael Mann's the keep and first night. Uh, and the last is our associate producer, Bud Smith. He's actually an editor by trade, and he's been editing films from the 60s all the way through 2004. He's edited this film, in addition to being an associate producer and the second unit director for this film. But he's also edited Personal Best, Flashdance, Karate Kid, Poltergeist 2, Dark Man, and the films The Replacements and Ladder 47, both of which were filmed in my hometown of Baltimore. Um, he also edited the Friedkin films Brink's Job, Cruising, and Deal of the Century. He has also done second unit for Schrader's Cat People, the classic Stopper My Mom Will Shoot, and then Virus with Jamie Lee Curtis produced by Gail Ann Hurd. Wow, so both classics. A lot of pedigree here, a lot of good stuff. Awesome. Well, let's <laughs> talk about the people in front of the camera. Uh, th there's only, we'll, we'll go through the names, but I, I want to just start off real quick talking about Roy Schreider um, as Scanlon. So Oscar nominee twice for best actor in a supporting role, The French Connection in 71 and best actor in the leading role, All That Jazz in 79. Uh, real quick, I'll, I'll start with you, Brad. When when you see this name, do you get excited? Do you like his work? What do you, what do you think of him as an actor? I mean, I think it's kind of hard to separate him from Jaws. But since that was like one of the first big films I remember seeing, I do really like him. And when I see him, I do get kind of excited um, just because for me, Roy Schneider means like blockbuster for some reason because of because of Jaws. Not right or wrong. I mean, he doesn't do a whole lot of blockbusters afterwards. But to me, it's like he is the guy I remember from Jaws. Um, but he's got other great films, but that's just kind of how, in my mind, I, I remember him. Okay. Uh, what about you, Jose? Uh, All That Jazz, Bob Fosse. It's one of my favorite films ever. But yeah, uh, obviously Jaws. But I also love him in uh, Marathon Man and Blue Thunder. Blue, Blue Thunder was like Thunder. a weekly rental for my family from from uh, it was Errol's at the time and then Blockbuster. But yeah, I, I don't know how many times I've seen Blue Thunder. I just, I love that movie. Love it. Um, Is that the best helicopter movie? Yes. Uh, yeah. The I only mean, helicopter movie. Well, I mean, people like <laughs> Airwolf, Blue Thunder. How, yeah. how could yeah. you choose Airwolf over Blue Thunder? I mean, come on. There was a Blue Thunder um, series, but it was- Well, Blue. let's forget uh, that. Let's just talk about the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Um, I love Scheider in uh, the men's club also. And then he, you know, he crops up in like Naked Lunch. He also did that weird uh, underwater TV show as well, which I think I watched like the first four seasons or something. So, okay. Um, oh, Sequ- it was called Sequest. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, but I love him. I think he's a great actor. Yeah, I'll, I'll be honest. I mean, I, I know him from Jaws, but the two films that I watched over and over again, uh, we've already talked about this one, Blue Thunder, right? So that's 1983. And the year after that, just because about the time that, you know, we just talked about 2001 and Space oh, Odyssey, I really liked him in 2010, the year we we make contact. Now, uh, yeah. it's Peter Himes film, and you can go, well, how could you make a sequel to 2001? I still really enjoy that film. I, I think it kind of dumbs down the mystery, you know, of the Arthur C. Clarke uh, narrative and explains, you know, what's going on with 2001, which is fine. But I think he's really good in it. Um, he, he's an actor that I think I prefer his earlier work than his later stuff. I'm with you, Jose. All that chat. He's amazing in it. That that. Could you I, imagine being like given the Herculean task of saying you're going to do the sequel to 2001? Good luck. Yeah, but he's good. I mean, <laughs> no, I know. I, I think yeah. that, I think 2010 is admirable. Actually, it's better than that. I I, I like it a lot. Yeah, I do too. Uh, the, the other folks in this um, are Bruner Kramer as Victor. Francisco Rabal plays Nilo. Uh, Amadou plays Kasem. We've now, I, I'm looking through these names, and to be quite honest, when I go through the, film, the filmography so far, it isn't until Amadou where I'm like, I, I think I remember this guy. And sure enough, it's like, yeah, he was in the, uh, the soccer film with Sylvester Stallone Victory. So, yep. But everything else so far, I'm like, hey, these are these are unknowns to me at this point. And then we get, um, Ro- I think it's Raymond Bieri uh, plays Corlette, the oil company representative. Another to face that I recognize. I go through his filmography. I'm like, no, 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 no. Until I see <laughs> Buck Rogers in The Fall Guy. And I'm like, yeah, that's what I remember him from. We get Carl John as uh, Marquez, who was the original driver in the film, but ends up dead. And then one face pops up that is kind of surprising. Uh, we, we need to pick a film and spend some time talking about this person, but it's Joe Spinell plays Spider. So he, he's got a little sequence at the airport scene, and then he's one of the drivers that try to get the job, and, and he's not picked. But uh, I'm always surprised <laughs> when Joe Spinell shows up. Yeah, so, he was in God, The Godfather and Godfather Part Two, I believe. Yeah, Rocky. I'm oh, Rocky, taxi driver. Taxi driver. I mean, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, nuts. Sorry. With the maniac. Yeah. I mean, come on. Oh, yeah, always the yeah. maniac. Always, always the maniac. maniac. So <laughs> we've talked a little bit about production development. Let's just let's just go through this in a little bit more detail. So Freakin originally conceived Sorcerer as a little two point five million dollar film, and it was supposed to be something that sort of um, he just did real quick. And it was a stepping stone between The Exorcist and his next project, which was titled The Devil's Triangle. Freakin's intention was not to create a remake, but to direct a film using only the same basic outline with completely original protagonists. He also wanted the film to be grittier than Clouseau's version, Wages of Fear, with the documentary feel for which he had become known. Freakin initially also wanted to get Clouseau's Wages of Fear re-released in America theaters, but could not convince any major studio to do so. He felt that American audiences had very limited exposure to Clouseau's film and that the English-speaking world in general was not very very familiar with it. Now, I think this is interesting because if you go back and read a bunch of stuff with Sorcerer, um, he says adamantly 
this is not a remake of Wages of Fear. But there is one film he talks about constantly that he says it's closer to. And I don't know if you guys stumbled across this. He and a lot of other critics bring up The Treasure of the Sierra Madre with Humphrey Bogart as a comparable film reference. Have you ever seen that film? Of course. Yes. Okay. I've even seen The Wages of Fear. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, I, I think we've all seen Wages of Fear. Treasure of Sierra Madre, I just watched for the first yeah, time. I brought up the Maltese week. Falcon a little while ago. That's on John Hudson as well. Yeah. So I had never seen yeah. this and, and sat down to watch it this week. And sure oh, enough. Oh, really? Yeah. I, oh, okay. I've owned it. I've sat on it forever. Um, but it's one of those Warner Brothers two discs that have like all these documentaries. I'm like, man, if I'm, if I'm going to go down that path, I really want to watch everything around that film. And, uh, it, it deserves its reputation. So I remember it being pretty long, right? Like it's, it's, oh, it's two hours and a minute. Or okay. Something. Two hours yeah. and six. Yeah. 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 Something like that. But it's, it flies in my opinion. And, and a hundred percent when I watch this, I'm like, yeah, this, I see why freaking associates his film with this one, probably more so than wages of fear in terms of, of, you know, the, the characters within it. Right now. It's, the, gold, it's, it's gold in that movie though. Right. Do what? Is it golden? That movie? Um, gold yeah gold. they're after yeah gold the treasure gold. is gold yeah, yeah. yeah the yeah. treasure is gold yeah they're mine i, I think gold. i think this is one of the first instances of a reimagining we hear that a lot right yeah so like child's the the new child's play was not a it wasn't a, a reboot it was actually just a reimagining of child's play right um and so i think this is one of the first instances where yeah because i mean there are shots in the wages of fear that are almost duplicated here, which is weird when he says it's not a remake, but yeah, it's a reimagining. Yeah. Agreed. Um, so this, this movie is plagued with problems and right out of the gate, it has casting problems. So originally freaking envision envision sort of this all-star cast and the names that keep popping up when you research, this is Steve McQueen, Marcelo Mastrioni and Lino Ventura. All of them ended up not being in the film. Steve McQueen's story is really interesting. So McQueen would only do the film if Freakin' would give his wife, Ali McGraw, either a role in the film or make her an executive producer. So there were two problems with that request. One, uh, Freakin' would have to rewrite the screenplay in order to insert a major female role, which is kind of funny because McQueen thought this was the greatest screenplay he ever read. And Freakin's like, if you think it's the greatest screenplay you've ever read, why would you want to change it? Um, so he said, no way, we're, we're not doing that. Uh, and and Freakin didn't believe in the executive producer credit. He thought it was sort of a bullshit title. And there was no way <laughs> he was going to do that. So he said no to that. So McQueen wanted to be in the film. He said, okay, how about you film this in the United States? Now, by this time period, Freakin had done a lot of location. He'd found where he wanted to shoot this. And he said, there is nothing in the United States that compares to where he wants to shoot the film. He said, no way. And, and finally, he just gave up on Steve McQueen. He's like, I, I'm, I'm not going to do this. So as for casting in general, he's always expressed his dissatisfaction with the process. And he felt that Sorcerer needed stars and claimed that the actors hired for the roles in, in the version that we see now were really his fifth, sixth, or seventh preferred choices. So he didn't get anybody that he wanted, right? Except I think um, Amadou was was a role he written for him, and, and he ended up getting him in the film. The yeah. other thing uh, that when you read about this, you'll you'll hear, and and this is sort of known 
um, on sets, but Freakin is, is kind of a difficult guy to work with, right? And it really became true uh, on this film. So I was reading a book called Hurricane Billy, The Stormy Life in Films of William Freakin. It's, it's uh, written by Nat um, Sigaliff. There's this one excerpt from the book I wanted to read. So it says, it was on Sorcerer that Freakin earned his reputation for firing people from his pictures. Most survivors placed the body count at 70, including several production managers. On many occasions, crew morale was minimal, and on one instance, it turned cruel. And, and this is a quote. I remember when Billy, who had probably just fired a rash of people and really devastated them in unsympathetic fashion, was driving with one of the stuntmen in a Jeep through one of the villages and ran over a pig. Johnson cites the pig was dying on the side of the road, screaming in pain. Billy went over to it and started to cry. And I think every single person on the cast and crew had very snide comments about the fact that he shed a tear for this pig. And yet the location manager, who was a very sweet woman, had been fired and sent running from the set in tears. And yet this is how Billy chose to show his sympathy. So that's a little taste of what was going on behind the scenes. Uh, so that that fight where that scene where the village just erupts into fighting, it's it's documentary, right? They just probably the crew, the, right? The lunch break. The crew, yeah. <laughs> um, you talked about this a little bit too, Brad, about the budget. So what started out as a two point five million, you know, goes to twelve or fifteen. It just keeps getting bigger and bigger. So as the budget continues to increase, Universal, who is the original backer of this project, reaches out to Paramount and says, hey, you want to co-finance this film? It's getting expensive. Um, both studios would end up sharing the U.S. distribution and Cinema International Corporation being responsible for the international release. So Universal is like, we can't foot this bill. Let's bring in another studio. Paramount was more than happy to do it because, obviously, the French Connection and The Exorcist. And then you talked about this too, Brad. The filming in general had a ton of problems, malaria, all this other stuff. But like one of the most iconic scenes in the film is the bridge scene. And, and I thought, hey, this is a great example of what it was like to work on this film. The bridge was designed by John Box using carefully hidden hydraulic components, allowing control of the movements of the bridge and the trucks alike. Its first iteration was constructed in the Dominican Republic over a period of three months and it required $1 million to complete. However, as soon as, as soon as it was finished, Freakin's crew faced a problem of abnormally low rainfall. During the construction process, the river's water level decreased dramatically, and by the time the bridge was assembled, the river had become completely dry, despite the assurance of local engineers that there had not been any recorded fluctuations in water level during the dry season. Studio executives suggested Freakin devise a less sophisticated scene, but he's stubborn. And he says, man, I, I need to do this thing. So we're going to move the entire production and this bridge they just built over to another spot in Mexico to film the sequence and then get gallons and gallons of water and hire helicopters and all this other stuff to, to create the wind. And then we talked a little bit about the release and why this thing didn't do possibly so well. Um, confusion over the marketing title. Was it a sequel to The Exorcist? What does the title mean? Um, and I, I thought this was interesting too. So the opening 16 minutes contained no English language, which made the audiences think that it was a foreign subtitled film and caused <laughs> walkouts. Consequently, this 
kind of prompted movie theaters to put a disclaimer on lobby cards asserting that, for the most part, it was an English language film. So just a sample of crap that just went down during the making and the release of it. They deserve they deserve their Star Wars at this point. <laughs> if they're like, hey, it's a foreign film and they're walking out, they deserve their escapism. Mother, okay? get your coat. We're leaving. Yeah. And and listen, if if you want if you want a really entertaining conversation just about Sorcerer, uh, go to YouTube, look for a a video called Sorcerer is a conversation with William Freakin and Nicholas Winding Refn. So um, it's on YouTube. They talk about Sorcerer. They talk about all of these things. Uh, it, it's a very entertaining behind-the-scenes look at that film and, and why it bombed. And you get to hear freaking cuss a lot and make fun of Nicholas. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if you guys had a chance to watch it. I, I watched it. There's, there's so much stuff you can find on Sorcerer. Like, the Blu-ray has nothing. There, there's no special features on it. But man, the amount of things that you can find on YouTube videos of of Billy Freakin talking about—I mean, it's endless. So um, I don't know. Did any other kind of tidbits of information you wanted to share about the making of this thing outside of it just being a general disaster and, and a pain in the ass to make? I I thought that I had read because um, so New Hollywood. Uh, the, uh, Exorcist and French Connection basically put him amongst his other contemporaries at the time were Coppola and Bogdanovich. Yeah. And they actually formed a company together. And apparently, Freakin had such a sort of professional jealousy over those two that after they produced, Coppola produced a film and then uh, Bogdanovich uh, produced a film, he left this company that they formed. And then the company basically died at Paramount. And I think I also had read that he was so jealous of Coppola and hearing that he was going to go to the, wherever he went to film Apocalypse. Now he was like, well, I'm going to do it in the Dominican Republic and we're going to film in Mexico and we're going to have, you know, verite style, everything real in front of the camera. And so I guess in a way, yeah, this is a blank check movie, but his sort of ego made it, you know, made the budget fluctuate all the way up to like 22 million. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. This is, uh, I, I think he's a very interesting director in that he, the product he puts out, uh, it, it can range from transgressive to extremely entertaining, but at the same time, his, <laughs> his ego's on full display when he makes a film and you, you hear yeah. all these stories about, you know, him slapping actors around and firing shotguns in the background to get the right effect. I mean, he, he sounds like a pure terror to work with behind the scenes, but at the same time, I mean, he's, he's created some masterpieces. Well, I mean, think about the most iconic shot in this film. He was right. Yeah. The bridge scene, like the way they shot it and how it looks still holds up today. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I think we've, uh, talked about everything leading up to this film, I, th- I really think it's time to take a break and come back and share our thoughts on this. So real quick, uh, I, I, I think this is just assumed this is not anybody's first time watch, right? No. Oh, no. Okay, great. So we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to dive right into our thoughts on uh, Billy's Sorcerer. So stay tuned. It's intermission. Rise and stretch time. Time to refresh yourself and visit our snack bar. 
Got a yen for hot popcorn? Your favorite soft drinks are sparkling cold. The juicy Frank sizzling hot. There's delicious coffee freshly brewed and all kinds of ice cream and candy to tempt you. Showtime will be announced loud and clear to get you back to your car in time. So stretch your legs. Come to the snack bar now. Somewhere between science and superstition, there is another world, a world of darkness. Nobody expected it. Nobody believed it. And nothing could stop it. The one hope. The only hope. The Exorcist. Warner Brothers presents William Peter Blatty's The Exorcist. The Exorcist, directed by William Friedkin. The Exorcist, rated R. Under 17, not admitted without parent. And now, on with the show. Jose, I'm going to kick it over to you. I'm really curious where you land on this thing. Uh, we've, we've had a lot of, um, I, I guess, exchanges within our little group. We, we wanted Sammy to come on and talk about this, but unfortunately, the gentleman's guide have already tackled this film. He didn't think he had anything else to add. But there were some interesting conversations going back and forth about what is um, Billy Freakin's best film. So I'm really curious where you land on Sorcerer. So Sorcerer, um, like Deliverance, is a film that I I probably revisit like once a year. And each time I watch it, I feel like I get something different out of it each time, maybe a different theme or a different way of looking at the film. Um, And I will say that the first time I saw it, uh, in a way, I kind of had a reaction like you did, Troy, to 2001, which was, what is the point of all of this? (laughs) Like, why? Why? why do I even care about these horrible, greedy people who are essentially escaping, potentially going to prison and then, you know, trying to escape the sort of like third world poor country that they've ended up in. And they take on this basic suicide mission. Um, And uh, I was specifically, it's weird. Even if I'm confused about a movie, I won't necessarily Google reviews or try to listen to the directors explaining it. I kind of want to get there myself in some ways, I guess. So should should um, we just outline real quick? Because I, I think you're right. Cameron had never seen this, and I, I asked if he wanted to watch it. So he sat down and watched it with me. And I, I think the story structure might throw off the average viewer. Mm-hmm. So yeah. there's, a, there's a part one which really is is the entire backstory of these four men and and there's like four little prologues right and and you see what they do 
but there's no like title cards to those chapters or anything no. like that. So it's just other than the locations. Yeah. 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 And uh, then the the second part of the film is you you just saw these four men what they were doing. And now the second part is they bring this men to this desolate town out in the middle of nowhere. And then you get, you get to see them living their lives there. And all of a sudden our, our problem presents itself. There is yeah. um, an oil fire. And the only way to put it out is to explode it. Um, and the dynamite has been sitting in another part of the jungle. And it's very dangerous to move because the nitroglycerin is kind of seeped out of it because it hasn't been turned. So that that's part two is the setup. Then part three is kind of the journey. So you have two trucks and they're going through treacherous roads, rotting bridge in a storm. Um, the, the bridge scene, this log that's blocking the road bandits and um, truck running out of fuel. That That's part three, the journey. Then part four, I guess the only way I can explain it is um, you, you can't, Epilogue? Es- you can't yeah. escape fate, right? Yeah. So, um, that's, that's the structure of the film, which I, I find is, is kind of odd. And even Cameron was like, what was the point of that first part? Like the first hour he didn't, he didn't get, because when I told him what the film's about, he's like, yeah, that, that started happening in the middle of the film and was the rest of the film, but he was thrown off by that first section. Well, yeah, the narrative just, style is definitely weird. The conceit doesn't happen until like an hour in. Yeah. So it kind of gives each character the reason to be basically hidden away right yeah exactly and so uh yeah i you you touched on it basically i i i know that they were going for the whole like fate thing but for me when i see this film when i watch this film i i think it's really just a, a a metaphor for that sort of unpredictability of life right i mean you can be absolutely fine and then something blows up or you get hit by a train and that's it it just it changes your life right so that was my first initial assessment but then the the more i keep watching it the more it seems that you know i i think it's about these it's weird it's 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 about these men that chose to do to commit crimes basically they chose this path in their own life and it literally brings them to this desolate place and this suicide mission where they're essentially risking blowing up their life, which is what their first actions did to put them there to begin with. And so it's, you know, two of the characters are, I would say, higher status and that they are in, in terms of where they are in their lives. They're, they're higher status. They've got the suits and stuff like that, but they're essentially like, murderers and frauds you know yeah um and then you have the sort of grunts who are guilty by association right so there's the amadou's character is part of four palestinians who blow up um uh i i feel like maybe it was a, a jewish um religious place or at least a religious marketplace for jewish people right and then um scanlon affiliates himself with an irish gang that you know, if there's anything that says his life has gone the wrong way, it's an Irish gang that is robbing a church amidst um, amidst a wedding where the bride has a black eye. And it's sort of like all these institutions that we think are safe have been, you know, sort of tainted and are no longer what they used to be. And so 
We call um, those Irish sunglasses, Jose. <laughs> Uh, not a bomb does not condone the Irish sunglass. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and, and then they find themselves in this, in, in this situation. And, uh, so again, I think it's, it's just this metaphor for how you may have designs on, on your, on your life, but life and fate may have a completely different plan for you. Um, but it's also on other watches. I think it's a really strong message about, you know, you, karma can be a bitch and you know maybe you shouldn't be greedy and maybe you shouldn't kill people and step on people to get where you are because there'll be a day where you can't cover your own ass and you're you're going to end up in a village in Colombia with dynamite um but man the tension in this film i mean I, I randy our good friend randy had sort of repped this movie and i'd never seen it before i bought it sight unseen and i watched it and I mean, the only other experience I can liken it to was seeing the Hurt Locker for the first time. Like so much tension and stress, like I wanted to hide underneath my seat. Like it just was unbearable. And and the the things that they sort of have to, the obstacles that they have to go through, and then they 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 reach like a fork in the road, and the arrow, it, like like in Jurassic Park, the the arrow is in the mud, and they have no idea where to go. And so it's it's just it's it's freakish and very tense. And then the ending is quite a wallop too. Um, I, I don't know. I, I love it. I think it's an unsung masterpiece. I'm glad people have really come around to it and have rediscovered it. And it's, uh, I wouldn't say it's freaking's best, but it's certainly, it's certainly up there. Okay. Well, what about you, Brad? Uh, I don't know how many times you've seen this sitting down, watching it again with, with a critical eye. Where did you land on it? So it had been a little bit of time because I had kind of misremembered the beginning of this because the vignette kind of jarred me for a minute. And then I remembered, I'm like, uh, remembered that this is an English film and the subtitles will go. Oh, away you, you were one of the, you were I'm one of the people they had to I do the cards. Watch, I watch things with subtitles on anyway, because I can't hear anything. So, yeah. um, I'm okay with that. Uh, it, it does a great thing that film that great films do and it's after you are done watching it you start to think about your own life and your own decisions and think about is karma real is fate real all these things it just like i sit and i think and like after turning this off and trying to go to bed like my mind just kind of racing because I think we all have moments in our life where we've had a literal, literal fork in the road and we're like, we, I went right, but what would have happened if I went left? Like, where would I have been like this whole decisions that we make throughout our lives? Um, or Hey, if I would have gotten a flat tire here, there was a truck behind me coming up really fast. Would I have been killed? Like, like all these moments, would I have just exploded? Um, but Jose hit it. I think when those guys get in the trucks and they start going, I can literally feel my hands in the side of my chair start digging in because you just know how tense it is. And the bridge scene in this film is, I would put that up with any scene I've ever seen in a film, period. 
it is, I don't know how to describe it. I was trying to think of like an elegant way of, of putting it, but it's, it's just, you have to see, like you have to see it. Um, but to make it all work, you kind of have to have everything before that. Like the smart thing about this film is the way they set up these characters. And when they all finally come together, you have that aha moment of, Oh, that's why we spent so much time getting to this point um, to get these guys in this situation. Cause we all know these, none of these guys are good. They're not good guys. So who's going to do who to what? Uh, Scanlon like is so eager to throw everyone under the bus just to make double shares or quadruple share could get all the money. Um, you know, he doesn't want the other truck to get over the bridge because he wants more money. And so they never have like a redeeming moment. Like just when you think they might, they don't. And then at the end, you get this gut punch of the guys coming back and finding him. And it, it is relentless in a way that films aren't relentless anymore. Like not in like a John wick sort of relentless, but just how every decision these guys make, you can literally see them digging their own grave in a way. And um, it's really powerful. And it's really something that the further I get away from seeing a film like this, the more I miss, miss films like this um, because it is difficult. And it does make you think, and it rewards for repeat viewings because you're going to pick up on different things. Your mood might change. And so the way you look at this film might change. It's just, it's just a masterpiece in like how a film can make you feel something or make you sort of contemplative on your own existence it's it's really something, man. Like I I wasn't expecting to be this moved by a film called Sorcerer, which is about these guys trying to get this dynamite to blow up an oil fire. Um, but yeah, it it really it really goes places and really hits you. Like I afterwards, I just felt fatigued. Like I had run ten miles after I watched this. I'm like hearts racing. I'm almost sweating. And I feel just as tired as uh, Scanlon does carrying that box the last mile, <laughs> which is an amazing visual sequence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are there are some shots in this, not only scenes but just shots, like where the the when he rolls up on the bandits, like some of that stuff is just so good. And when that when that truck blows up, no matter how many times I see it. It still shocks me. All the explosions in this film yeah. are incredibly re- even. Yeah, that oil fire oh is my, like. Yeah, I'm. I'm pretty sure people were either hurt, maimed for life, or died in some of these explosions. They are that like propulsive and visceral. Every single one of them. There's so much fire in this movie. <laughs> yes, <laughs> there is. I. I. So um, you guys. You guys uh, have mentioned this, and when we talked about the structure of the narrative. Uh, and and I, I just want to walk through this and, and see if you guys are in agreement. If we talk about part one and two, which is sort of the part one being the background. So these four stories and then part two is, is what they're doing now in this village. You are introduced to these unsympathetic anti-heroes and uh, at no point during the first hour of the film, 
do you sympathize with any of them? It, I mean, is that fair? Well, you shouldn't. If you do, you shouldn't. Right. You shouldn't. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, they are struggling. And I, I like how both of you phrased it. They've, they're struggling because of the choices that they made. And at no point, like if, if the town blew up and all four of those characters died within the first hour of the film, you'd probably cheer, right? You'd be like, <laughs> yeah, well, good. Because exactly. <laughs> that guy like ripped off a bunch of money and from his, his wife's father and then left her with the debt. This other dude like robbed a church and um, you got an assassin and then somebody's running around setting bombs off in the city, killing innocent people. There, there's no another guys. An, another guy's a Nazi. <laughs> yeah. There, there was yes. an ex Nazi there. <laughs> um, and so part three, the journey is them taking these risks. And then to part four is the gut punch, right? The, the fate catches up specifically with the Scanlon character. And all of a sudden you feel something. Like you're, you're like, oh, shucks. I, I thought he was going to make it right. He doesn't. What point of the film did you find yourself rooting for the people that you just spent the first half of the film hating or not liking? Do you, do you guys know? I, to me is when he's the last guy and he's carrying that box. Cause at that point in time for me, he's like gone 99.9% .9 of the way. And it wasn't that I was more rooting for him. I was rooting for the fire to get out. Okay. But then I was thinking about why am I rooting for the oil fire to get out? Like these white men are exploiting these villagers to make <laughs> oil money. So then they're bad too. So it's like, no one is really good in this movie. Yeah, true. You know, for me, I think the, the point where I was kind of like, I really hope they make it is, um, and I think it's become a cliche now is after the, the Frenchman and, and Amadou blow up is because, you know, he's like, this was given to me by my wife. I hope to get back to her. Boom. You know, so it's kind of, um, I, but I think after that explosion, I was like, oh my God, now I'm really hoping that those two actually make it. But the, it's weird. They do this weird cinematography thing where after the explosion, they stop, they're, they're seen by the, they're held hostage by those rebels in some ways, but they have like a ghostly pallor on their face. It's some of the powder that's ended up on their face or whatever. And I was like, oh, they're not going to make it because they already look like ghosts or dead people. So I don't know. It, it was a way that the cinematography was like sort of signaling it. But yeah, my problem with the explosion scene, and this is might be morbid, but those bodies would not be intact in that explosion. Did you see what it did no. to that truck? Like those bodies yeah. were in too good a shape after they exploded. <laughs> Oh, so now you're given what you got after me last week for giving the Cohen brothers uh, tips mm -hmm. Academy of winning. So you're, you're now giving him director notes. Yeah. Billy, uh, that, those bodies are too, uh, <laughs> too pristine. Yeah. I, hey, look, I, I think, I think you guys uh, nailed it. I mean, one of, one of the most fascinating things about this film is the first hour you're, you're seeing really despicable people. And in the last hour of the film, you end up, at some point rooting for them. I, I think it's interesting. And I know freaking doesn't believe in heroes, but he also has, you know, kind of makes a statement that with all of his characters, uh, none of them are good and none of them are evil, but they're both they're They're composed of both good and evil elements, right? Everybody's gray. It's not black and white and mm. no other movie, in my opinion, in his, in his filmography probably represents that, 
more so than sorcerer in terms of, of creating that anti-hero character that the first half of the film, you see the evil and the second half of the film, you start to see some redemptive qualities. And I think it's really interesting. And, and I think this comes from a combination of the performances and the screenplay, the things that they do to solve the obstacles um, they encompass on the journey they needed to go through those things in the beginning in order to solve that. So that was the point I was going to, that was the conundrum that I saw this time, which was, you know, Scheider is the driver. He's yeah. the getaway in the beginning. They need his truck skills. The guy, the guy who plants the bomb, it's his skills. They rely on to blow up the tree. And so it's kind of that like it weird, the like, in the thing. Yeah. yeah. Had they, the assassin really, takes out the bandits. Yeah, yeah. So they 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 were required for this trip or this journey. They were almost fated to 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 be on this journey. So now this time around when I watched that, I was kind of like, oh my God. You know? And I hadn't picked up on that before. And I'd seen the movie a ton of times. So Yeah. yeah. And, and again, I <laughs> to me, when you start to realize that and you start to see that, okay, they take the bomber, for example. Um, you see this character who murdered all of these people for a cause, right? And then it, you're going, I can't root for that guy. But then as soon as you see that tree and there's no way to get around it and he takes the skills that he used, you know, for nefarious reasons, and all of a sudden it's going to solve this problem to get the trucks to that fire. At some point you, you start to ask yourself like, well, it, it had to be fate that he was there, that they had the person with that skill and um, it took it took an explosive expert or a terrorist in order to move that obstacle. When you come to those bandits and there's four or five guys who are trying to rob the truck, it takes somebody with, you know, those gun skills and an assassin to take out the four or five and Schreiter, you know, is now left to deal with one and a shovel. But he needed to be there at that point. And if he wasn't there, those bandits would have got the, the truck and, and murdered you know, Roy Schreider's character and whoever else would have been along. So yeah. I, I think it's really fascinating that at some point as a viewer, you start to understand like the script is, is really setting this up that, yeah, you, you need those people. You need those deplorable skills and those deplorable characteristics in order for them to actually complete this journey because at every obstacle you're tapping into those skills. And so I don't know at what moment it could have been when they are going through that. Um, you know, it's, it's really just Roy Schreider and uh, I can't remember the other character who's, who's been shot and is now dead in the cab and they're going through that Milo. really haunting landscape. And all of a yeah. sudden you're going, well, holy cow, I hope they make it. Uh, because at this point there's some justification for why those men are where they're at. And there feels a little bit of a redemptive quality going on with that with that second um, part of the film, you know, the the chapter three and four, act three and four, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, and I, I always don't know find that really fascinating. Yeah, I don't know what it's called, and I, I, like it's the inverse of fate, but or maybe it is another just variation of fate. But like, I've also heard like it doesn't matter what choices we've made. Like we were talking about the fork in the road. If you go left you go one way and it's right. You go another way. But then like, there's also another thought of like, it just kind of comes back and you're going to 
your your basically your end product would be the same regardless. So you're yeah. always kind of fated to to be down this one path, regardless of what choices you've made. You're always going to end up on that one path. Like these guys, regardless of the choices that they made, could you could argue because of what they've done, we're always going to be fated like to be in this situation just because of what they've done. This was their fate all along. I don't know if that's fate because like it doesn't rely on choices that you've made because you're just always going to be there. Um, But you can look at it like that too. I think that's really fascinating that this film argues that, Hey, maybe, maybe it doesn't matter if they went left or right. That one truck was always going to blow up and the other truck was always going to run out of gas or, or, whatever and he was going to have to carry it the last mile um yeah or yeah. or it may not be that jungle but it may be another city it may be another yeah, it might location be, yeah, yeah. they were going to go there through might be that. a different there might be a different bridge it it is interesting it's, to come off of the exorcist which is a film about faith i mean that mm-hmm. and and questioning faith and um really having you know the movie the exorcist is not about the exorcism as much as about let's talk about a priest faith and losing it and and coming to grips with it again, go from that topic to a film that is all about fate now, not faith. But you know, do you, do you have a choice? Are you to your point, Brad, are you always going to end up in that same spot no matter what you do? Mm -hmm. Because that's what you're destined for. I think that's a super interesting concept. So predestination. Okay. Yeah. Like predestination. predestination, Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's Friedkin's, it's Friedkin's matrix y'all. It is. Uh, I mean, and and I think that's why the audiences weren't receptive to this because, you know, when you tackle a a big life quandary and you wrap it in the shell of like a possessed girl and self-sacrifice through faith, you know, I think people can latch onto that. But when you do something like this, where you have to dig into the narrative and you have to ask questions and it provokes a response from the viewer, like, what did I just see? And the answers aren't handed to you. I think that's when audiences, I think they'll still check out even to this day when you present them with something like that. Well, and, well, I, and um, also so, if the first 16 minutes of the film are in a different language and they're like, I have to read. <laughs> and then this right. thing is like, but really I, challenging me to think about other things afterwards. Like, fuck you. Well, I, I don't. Yeah. So I'm, I'll say this. I don't think it's that far off from the exorcist, because if you think about the structure of the exorcist, you're starting in an archeological dig. You have no idea what's going on. The actual possession, it takes a while to get to that element of the film. And so if, if somebody comes yeah. to the exorcist and says, well, that movie, I really don't like that film because it's really boring in the first hour. I'd be like, okay, well, it it has very much the same narrative structure as Sorcerer, in that it's it's trying. Again, if the if the movie The Exorcist is about faith, and the priests are the central character, not Reagan. Um, Reagan is the catalyst for that question around faith. Sorcerer is very much the same thing. It's instead of a possession, now you have trucks filled with dynamite and nitroglycerin. But it, it's very much yeah. the same structure. And whereas one, I don't think The Exorcist leaves you with a nice narrative bow on top and says, okay, everything's done. I think there are questions at The Exorcist where it it's not all a happy ending. Um, oh, yeah. And I agree. I think Sorcerer. Is Reagan like crying over the end? Like as that movie's fading to black? Don't you like hear? Because she's like crying from all the stuff that's gone on. Um, is she? Yeah, I don't I, I thought so. she. I thought she gave the 
I thought she gave the pendant to what's his face, and then she Maybe. looks back at him when they're driving it's away. Little, it's been a yeah, little there's there's just some confusion exactly. about what does she remember, the death yeah. of the priest, what does it all mean, you know? Right. Um, I, I again, I think there are questions to be asked at the end of the Exorcist, but you know, visually, um, <laughs> the head spinning and the the crucifixion or the 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 crucifix and the you know the bad the the, the holy spot of the you know what I'm talking about that scene. The, what? You know that. Express yourself, Troy. Well, I'm trying. Not I see to the motions. I see the hand motions. Yeah, I'm not trying. I'm not trying to do the hand motions. I'm just saying there's a very graphic what part about of the exercise. Mother sucking cocks in hell, Troy. Yeah, yeah, that one. That? Okay. Um, but you, you've you've got those just in your face, bold, like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm seeing this. I think you've got some of those same sequences in the sorcerer, specifically with that bridge sequence. Well, so, in the explosion. In the explosion, yeah, and I I think they're they're very similar films in terms of the narrative structure. But one is tackling that theme of faith. This one's, you know, talking about predestination or fate. Uh, and I, I love it for that. From a technical standpoint, I, I did want to, I think you were the one that mentioned this term, Jose, uh, cinema verite. Mm-hmm. So for yeah, those. Like documentary style. Well, yeah. I mean, cinema verite is, is for those not familiar with it, it's really truthful or observational cinema, right? So it, it is a documentary style um, film and I, I love what freaking does in this movie is that there isn't a lot of dialogue. It is narrative through action, but he puts these scenes together that tell you so much about the world and he doesn't have to say anything. And Brad, you mentioned this already. Like one of my favorite scenes of this, of this film is the church scene because as it's, it's in the beginning and as it's being set up, you're a casual observer watching this wedding play out right but then all of a sudden you see a couple getting married at the altar and the bride has obviously been beaten the uh irish sunglasses i think is the term that you use brad (laughs) the priests are in the back of the church counting all of this money coming in from all these different sources of the church between bingo and donations everything else and they're kind of joking about how much money is kind of following through and then you get this heist uh, that is taking place during the wedding. And then a guy just shoots a priest. I mean, the priest wasn't really representing any danger to them, but he didn't like what he said. So he shoots him. That entire sequence tells you so much about, I think Freakin's view of the world and how complex it is. And to your point, Jose, how, when you start peeling back the onion, there's all these different layers. It's not what you think it is when you first look at it. And this film is just filled with that type of cinema verite where yes, there's action going on and it's telling you what's going on with the plot, but it's also telling you about this world through all these little details that you're picking up. Even that sequence where Roy Schreider is looking at the poster of the woman with the Coca-Cola bottle and you're trying to figure out like, what is he pining for? Is it the Coke? Is it the embrace of a woman? Um, But it's, it's those little sequences that freaking is so, is such a master director that he's telling you everything about these characters. He's telling you everything about this, this world. And the exposition is coming from the camera, just pointing out these little details and you taking stock in it as you're watching the narrative unfold. It, it's fantastic. I didn't like what they did with his, they did some weird makeup with his, the bridge of his nose. He does in the <laughs> Well, in the beginning, and then yeah. he gets into the accident and then he, you know, whatever. But so I have a question for you guys at the end of the film, he, 
Scheider comes out of the helicopter and he's now in this fancy suit or whatever. And the villagers are cheering him because the village relies on the work from the from the oil thing. Yeah. They've distinguished the fire, which it still boggles my mind physics wise why they need dynamite to blow up it, fire. It, and it stop takes it. all the it takes all the oxygen, the oxygen out of the air. Out. It, so the fire is extinguished. Yeah. Okay, I didn't do well in science. Whatever. Okay. Um, but anyway, he comes out. <laughs> well, and actually, mm. well, <laughs> actually, we're, we don't like science on this show. Remember, Brad? So let's keep those facts for ourselves. That's right. So um, infinite. Um, but <laughs> oh, yeah, ass. So the, so the village, so the village is the village is cheering him. Is is that redemption for him in some ways? Because he's restored the economic viability of this of this village basically for me do you feel like that's redemption <laughs> well <laughs> I, it goes well to me it goes back to that church sequence so you you get that celebration you get him dressed up you get the everybody excited right that the problem solved but then there's these conversations about well you can go drive here i might go join you because we might be shut down in three months right because of the government or whatever so right. and, and even then the one a, guy's like, you should go to Managua. Yeah. So I, I, it's an interesting question because to me, it's another example of you can go back and watch that sequence and they're probably telling you everything that's going on with the political and social economic part of that village. And it's not oh, all yeah. black and white. And to Brad's point, it it's kind of a catch 22. You save the village, but you're still exploiting the hell out of them, right? For cheap labor. Yeah. And you see how dangerous True. working in that oil refinery is. Oh yeah. yeah. And then the cops are shaking, shaking you down for, you know, a portion of that money. So yeah. Uh, it's crazy. Yeah. For every $3 you make, you give us one. I, I, and then I, and then I guess the question is, is would those, would, uh, Richie's henchmen and the guy that, you know, helped him escape or whatever, would they even recognize him? Because now his face is different. He's in the, the suit. I don't know, but I like the ambiguous sort of ending where they're the bad guys are just walking in there and you're like, Oh shit, what's going to happen. And then it, you know, it ends. Yeah. I, I don't think it ends good for our, no, our no probably not. But. Yeah. <laughs> they're not going all that way just to say hello. Yeah. True. And I doubt there's any way that, I mean, if, if you're looking at the setup of his particular story, there, there's no way he's, he can bribe himself out of it or anything else. I mean, he, he's going to have to, you know, all these characters end up giving their life in some fashion for the sins that they commit during their life. And, and to Brad's point, it's like, well, was that always going to happen no matter where you were at? It was just going to play out that way. Can I also just mention how interesting it is that the the guy that helps Scheider escape in the beginning walks out of uh, from underneath an awning that says, weekly transients hotel and i'm like (laughs) okay it's a hotel for weekly transients great (laughs) yeah it's uh i I don't know about you guys i i i think it is master class cinema um yeah it is 100 one of the best things that come out of the 70s i find it endlessly rewatchable for for all the reasons that you guys talked about like every time i visit this film there's something i'm i'm taking away from it even though I know how it starts and I know how it ends. And, and even in the first hour, I still don't like those guys. But in the second hour, I, I feel like there's some kind of redemptive quality or I understand it's not so black and white. But as many times as as um, I've seen this film, I still go on that emotional journey, which is so weird. Well, I would argue that I don't know if I would rewatch this thing like tomorrow. To me, this is a film that I kind of have to get 
some distance between my watches because it is exhausting. And I like to have some time in between viewings because my life has changed at least a little bit to where I'm going to maybe view it a little differently or something's going to change. But it's mostly because it's just I think it's exhausting in like a good way. That's fair. Yeah, I feel the same way about like deliverance. That's why they're just they're one time each year watches. But uh, but each time I'm I'm rewarded by seeing either of these. This would make a great stressful um, double oh, feature. <laughs> <laughs> what a double feature! I don't. I I kind of agree with you. I, I find myself uh, take that bridge sequence. I know it took like uh, three million dollars, seven months to make, and every time I see it, I'm sitting there looking at that like, how how did they do that? I I want an entire documentary just on that bridge sequence. Yeah, I know he's I know he's a you know, an honorary old bastard, but he was right that, that whatever he wanted, well, how much it costs that bridge scene is perfect. Yeah. And it's a combination of the actors doing some of that driving, being on that bridge with the stuntmen. I mean, it, it is crazy to me that they pulled it off. Uh, but again, the strength of the film, every time I want to go back and watch it from a technical aspect and, and try to understand like some of the cinematography or dissect, you know, some of those complex shots, I always get really caught up in, the story and the narrative. And uh, I, I just get wowed by everything. Um, it It's so impressive. Oh, really oh impressive. wow. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. I get Owen Wilson really bad. <laughs> yes. Uh, what other thoughts do you guys have on this one? Everybody watch it. And I wish I, I was, so the, I guess the Blu-ray I have is the same Blu-ray you guys have, which is they had remastered it, I think in 2014, mm-hmm. but damn it. Criterion, uh, you know, all you people out there, just can we just remaster this and put a ton of extras on it, please? Because I I need that. I Did need you get that the digibook version that has the it's in the cardboard with the like book packaging. No, I got the iteration after that because it was I too have. cheap to buy the digibook. <laughs> oh yeah, there's a, there's a nice little letter from from Billy in there. Uh, it's got some great yeah. behind the scenes photos. Um, I, I really would love Criterion Warner, but somebody to put something out. And, uh, I think is there has to be somebody making a documentary about the making of this film. There has to be. I know. Where, where is it people? I need to know. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, I mean, I don't know what Warner brothers has in terms of, um, footage that came back. Right. But it's gotta be something. I, I just, yeah, there has to be, I don't know. Uh, okay. So I'm going to start with you, Jose. We had a lively discussion over 1977's The Sorcerer. Is it a bomb? It is absolutely not a bomb. It is a classic. It is one of Friedkin's best. Okay. What about you, Brad? This is, I, uh, I, I second what Jose said, not a bomb. And, and just real quick, as we, I, I want to clarify this to live and die in LA, in your mm-hmm. opinion though, is Friedkin's best film. Yes. Yes. Okay. I feel that. Okay. I disagree. That's fine. Um, but what do you okay. think is the best? I think it's the exorcist. Okay. Yeah. But not French connection. I, I'll say this, um, man, I wish I hear the argument for like six or seven of his films. So that's the thing. Like I, I can't true. fault anybody. I, I think the exorcist has a more, um, for me, interesting, thesis and some of the camera work in that and the shots are just as exhilarating as anything else that he's done. 
I mean, you, you can argue that the car chasing and the French connection, I mean, forget doing car chases after that one, right? Um, that thing's amazing. But The Exorcist to me just ha- just packs an emotional punch that some of his other films haven't. But name another three films between French Connection, The Exorcist, and Sorcerer. Like name another director that has put that kind of pedigree out there in, in the world of cinema. I, I think the list is really short. Yeah, I think so. Some of his contemporaries, Coppola. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, it's a short, it's a short list. And by the way, I should mention uh Owen Roisman was the DP for The Exorcist. He passed away this year as well in January. Oh dang. Yeah. Sadly. No, it's uh he's amazing. I watching this makes me want to go back and watch everything again, except The Exorcist, because I can't watch that alone. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's too scary, but, um, awesome. Well, Brad, we, we have some listener feedback. I think you got, Ooh. uh, something we, we yeah. put a call out there for everybody to help us pick films for our October spooky season. And you got something that came through already, right? Yeah. We're getting some stuff in already. Let me pull it up. So this comes from our friend Linus. He said the empty man. It's, he says it's an obvious pick but one of his favorite bombs of the last few years horror or otherwise have you heard of the empty man troy no i had no idea i mean what it, i'm gonna so have to research 20 and it was not okay. it was not what uh, i hold my opinion <laughs> david Pryor. it was his first film um like i said it, was, it came out in 2020 okay um we'll add that to the, the list it's a contender it is a contender. It is a contender. Okay. You have the other one? I do have the other one. Uh, this is a little bit longer. So we got some some feedback from Gary. Uh, he says, I've really been digging the show. It was suggested by my confidants over at the GGTMC. Whoa. It's wonderful for me as a podcaster who will review many genres of films that you guys go full spectrum on what you guys review. The recent Big Lebowski review was great. I forget who it was that said it's great, but not the greatest Cohen joint. Mine is raising Arizona every day of the week from the cold open to the random dialogue that we all love. It is pitch perfect. Them are some mighty fine cereal flakes. Indeed. I would love to be on when you have an available spot. I've been doing cinema beef, cinema beef podcast for about a decade now. So I promise not to be a wet blanket. My suggestion for October is night of the creeps stone cold classic amongst many now, but woefully underperformed way back when, like so many we love. Thanks for the free entertainment and much love, Gary. There you go. So Ooh, we- I hope Gary comes on the show and his, his pick is perfect, especially considering, didn't you guys cover the Monster Squad? No, we haven't no. done that yet. Oh, we okay. The blob. But, We've done the, we blob the Blob and stuff like that. Yeah. But Fred Decker, Fred Decker wrote uh, Night of the Creeps and uh, the Monster Squad. I love Fred Decker. He's awesome. Yes. Do it, do it. All right. Well, that's going, <laughs> that's going in the hat, Night of the Creeps. So, there you go. We got a recommendation and people should go check out the cinema beef podcast. Brad and I are going to start listening. Uh, I, I, I love when people, you know, Hey, we're doing this podcast. Here's what I, here's what we talk about. Love your show. So, um, send all that stuff in. And, and again, folks, we are, we are looking for a long list of spooky movies to pick from. So send in your suggestions, Brad, how do they do that? Yeah. That's not a bomb pot at gmail.com or you can go to Instagram, Twitter and Facebook, or you can go to not a bomb podcast.com and hit the contact us button there. Troy, there are some rules though. Yeah. It's gotta be either a financial bomb 
a critical bomb, and it's got to be a horror film. <laughs> okay. It's got to be a film that we haven't done yet. So please uh, look at the list and make sure you know what we've done horror-wise. We've done, I don't know, 10 or 12 horror films. So, Yeah, uh, that's a good point. We don't want to go back and revisit something we've already done. So uh, hopefully... You can go, I, I think the website just has all the podcasts on there if you have any it questions, does. right? It does. Okay, yeah. cool. Jose, what's going on over at WatchKit Plus, man? Um, while I'm trying to look at a recommendation, mm. we are we are reviewing uh Jesus, what did we review? Um, the Dracula oh. movie? <laughs> yes, the last voyage of the Demi the Demeter. Uh so that should be coming out on on Thursday and uh it is not doing well at the box office. So I think by the time it comes out, it will be out of the theaters. But <laughs> Man, add it to that'll the list. That'll, that'll be good for your numbers. Good job. <laughs> it, it'll be perfect for the numbers. But but I think the thing that like I had a lot of anxiety about is before we recorded, I had seen that the Night of the Living podcast members, uh, they had all gone on a field trip to see it, and they absolutely loved it to the point where they had said something along the lines of, go out to the theater and see these kinds of films so we can get more of these films. And then I was thinking to myself, please God, no more of these films <laughs> oh. not to tip my hat or anything. Oh, like you I, just tipped your hat, bud. It's okay yeah, to I like did. a movie and it's okay not to like a movie. Agreed. Yes. Unless absolutely. it's and enter the ninja or revenge of the ninja you or American ninja. Cause I got to see that again. That thing really or ninja up. three or ninja three. Yeah. Ninja movies in general from the canon films you're supposed to love. If you don't, you're a yes. communist and you know, take a hike. <laughs> Also, Troy, we forgot to mention, if we yeah. pick your film and do it in October, Troy and I will send you something as a reward for giving a good pick. Yes. But we're going to pick Ooh. them at random. So Yes, we are. Ooh. Uh, and my my recommendation would be yeah. Bloom, Bloom House's Fantasy Island, because it is, oh. it is a horror film. Is, is that a horror film? I Yeah, I think so. It, it's a... It's a horror take on the classic television show Fantasy Island. Huh. And that's why it's called Bloom Houses I, Fantasy. I feel Island. like that should be an episode of Breaking Brad Fantasy you're Island. Around, you're throwing around <laughs> classic quite It literally. could be. And I nominate myself as a guest also because I love that movie. Oh boy. Okay. <laughs> uh Brad, what what are we going to talk about next week? So next week is is an interesting pick. Um we are going to do 2005's epic historical drama by Ridley Scott, we're going to do the director's cut, which the director's cut is 194 minutes. It is Kingdom of Heaven. Yeah. One of Scooter's favorite films. He has seen it a bazillion times. He wears out that Blu-ray. He loves that movie. I'm really excited to revisit it. Um, it, it it's one of our favorite directors to talk about, mm -hmm. and uh, we we like us some big epic um I don't know. What is it's not what would you classify? Sword that and film? sandals. Sword and sandals. Is it sword yeah. and sandals? Is it? Okay. Sword sword and boobies? <laughs> okay. <laughs> it does have Eva Green in it, so yes. Oh, all right. I like it. Uh so if you like this podcast and you want to hear some more about sorcerer, go back to the archives of the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. They did a great episode on it. But Brad, who else should they be listening to? Yeah, we have Watch Skip Plus. The VHS Files podcast, which my episode will be coming out relatively soon. We talked about our top four intros in films, so look for that. 
Night of the Living podcast, Backlook Cinema podcast, the Mixtape podcast, and Raiders of the podcast, which Kevin was on Watch Get Plus just a few weeks ago. Yeah, that was a great episode, yep. too. It's synergy. We We're all working together. Syner- we are. Synergy. Yes. Syn- Sorcerer Syn- synergy. Just yeah. kidding. <laughs> and uh, in a couple of weeks, Brad and I will also be giving you another podcast to listen to. We've been invited on a show. We're going to keep it top secret right now. But um, yeah, we're going to get to talk about uh, one of our favorite films in one of our favorite genres um, for a new uh, podcast friend that we met. And then they're going to come on our show for a couple episodes too. So it's going to be a lot of fun. A little more synergy, cross promotion going on. Uh, so we love Dutch doing that. action. Goes both ways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. There's that analogy. Um, okay. Anything else? I think, I think we're all done, right, guys? Yeah. Okay. Cool. I don't know Good if you. Good job, guys. Yeah. Pat ourselves on the back. Just a hell of a job. Way to go. Way to. Mm, awesome. Uh, I don't know if you're living, uh, living. Here we go. Screw it <laughs> no, up. Are you, dead? are you dead at listening to this podcast? Cause congratulations. <laughs> if you are ask, if you are ask Billy to listen, there you go. <laughs> I don't know if you're listening in the morning, the afternoon or evening. Thanks for downloading the episode and hearing us ramble about sorcerer. Come back next week. when we talk about kingdom of heaven, go listen to watch get plus. And, uh, if you like what you listen to leave a review, we'll catch you next week. Don't lose your head.